You're listening to a sermon from Pasco Vale Church of Christ. To hear more of our teaching or to find out about the church, please visit our website, pvcc.org.au. Good morning, Pasco Vale Church, and a warm welcome to those of you who are here and those who are listening online. Now, I think I drew the short straw today by picking the chapter and verse. But nonetheless, as Pastor Devin mentioned last week, we do not get to pick and choose what we want to teach from the Bible. We need to let God's word lead the narrative because Jesus commanded us to go make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that he has commanded. And the key word here is all, all that he's commanded, not just the bits that we like or the few good topics, but also the hard and difficult lessons as well. So to help us with tackling this message of law, divorce and remarriage, we'll be looking into the Gospel of Luke chapter 16 verses 16 to 18 as I was read just earlier to help us get a better understanding of um, what the message is about. But before we do so, let's bow our heads in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear the word. Our Father, we just thank you for the gift of Scripture. Indeed, sometimes um, the words and, and the teachings from there can be very pointed and very direct. We just pray, dear Lord, that you help us to have a year to hear the, the message that you're about to bring. May the meditation of our hearts and the words that we speak today be wholly acceptable to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we talk about the law, I think most of us have a love-hate relationship, don't we? We love the law when it catches the bad guys and who commits horrible crimes and do bad things. But when we get a speeding ticket or a traffic infringement because we made that illegal U-turn or we went just that bit too fast uh, or we failed to stop at a stop sign, we don't quite like the law anymore because we get caught and we have to pay the fine and get a punishment for it. Now, to be perfectly honest, I'm alarmed at my capacity to twist the law to suit me. And I think there's nowhere where we are better at doing this than when it comes to the masses of the heart. When we have our hearts set on something and we sort of know that what God says is pointing us in another direction, our capacity to ignore God's word or to twist it to make it suit what we want to do is incredible. This is partly what Jesus is addressing here in this passage and he's speaking with the Pharisees, the law people of the time. These were the people who were very good at applying the law to others and to twist it to their own advantage. We can quickly see this in verse 14, as the Pharisees were described as lovers of money. And when they heard Jesus teach about money from the scripture, instead of being impressed and being challenged by the word, by his wisdom, they ridiculed him. He ridiculed the word and the law. So the first thing we want to talk about today before we get to the main topic of divorce and remarriage is Jesus and the law in verses 16 and 17. In verse 16, we see that there's kind of a discontinuity in the law. We read that the law and the prophets were, were until John. After that, the good news of the, God, the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Now the way the verse is written is hard to understand, but what it is essentially saying is when Jesus came, everything changed. When Jesus came, everything changed. Up until Jesus, 
God made his will known through the law and the prophets. He put a boundary around our relationships with him and our relationships with each other. He taught us how we were to relate. Now there's some good news. There are some people in the Old Testament who were commended for their righteousness, like Noah, Abraham, David, Elijah, Elisha, Job, and others. But they have one thing in common. They have one, in com- one thing in common too, and that is they have fallen short as well. Some more than others. But it does not matter if it was a millimeter or a mile. It's the same regardless by God's standard. This is, of course, tells us that just like each one of us, we all fall short of God's standards. But at the end of the day, God is perfectly holy. And He still loves each and every one of us. That is why He sends Jesus to rescue us from our sins. Jesus comes along and He's introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now it's a big shift from the law and consequence, isn't it? You know, last time, whatever we did wrong, we get punished. But now we have the gift of the Lamb. Because before Jesus, when people wanted their sin dealt with, they had to go and sacrifice an animal at the temple and so on. There was a way to deal, that was the way to deal with sin, but it was only temporary. John, however, says Jesus has come and he's going to take away the sins of the world. That is fantastic news. And that is why it's so important that we share the gospel with others. Now, how did Jesus save us? He did so by fulfilling the righteous demands of the law. Doing absolutely everything that God has commanded and required of human beings. More than that, he paid the price for our failure to do that also on that cross. He stood in our place and took the punishment for our sin, which is death. This is so that we can be set free. This is the power of the good news of the gospel. Jesus' first message was repent. And believe the good news. And Luke tells us in this verse that people were trying to force their way into God's kingdom. So what's that about? It's what we read last week that the tax collectors and the sinners who knew that they had fallen short by a long way. And when they heard that there's hope and there's forgiveness of sin, they're busting. They're busting to get near to Jesus. And this was alarming the Pharisees. So there's that discontinuity of the law. Because the Pharisees taught that the only by following the law to the T can we enter the kingdom. But Jesus was showing a different way. But there's also continuity in the law in verse 17. Jesus said, But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So the question is, if Jesus came along to give us a free pass, does that mean we can do whatever we want or whatever we like now? Of course not. The problem that the Pharisees have is that they are actually using the law to try and work out the minimum standards of what you can get away with 
before you invoke the wrath of God. It's a totally wrong way of looking at the law because the whole thing is relational. The whole law is relational. This is because when you become a Christian, when you trust in the finished work of Jesus, your relationship and the relationship to doing the right thing changes. We're no longer in debt to the law. We do it because we are blessed by the law, by the, by the grace of God. It's no longer about what can I get away with, but what does the law allow me to become? It's like when you are in a marriage, it's not about how much we are in love with each other, but that we need to do what's best for each other. It's like our relationship with God. The question is no longer, what can I get away with without upsetting Jesus or God? But rather the question is, if Jesus loved me so much that he died then saved me from my sins, how can I respond to that kind of love in a way that honors him? That's a totally different question, isn't it? And you see, that's what the Pharisees were wanting to know when they are asking a question which we'll look at in a moment. So Jesus does that in verse 18. I think verse 18 actually is an example of verses 16 and 17, and it's a touch point for the Pharisees. Now everyone divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, we know that the Ten Commandments, of course, clearly states that adultery is against God's law. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, the seventh commandment spoken by God was that we shall not commit adultery. But the Pharisees, of course, were using creative workarounds to enable a kind of serial adultery to occur. It was a very life issue at that point in time, as it is now. I'm sure a pressing question on mind today is, under what circumstances is it okay to divorce and remarry? Well, in this verse and also in Mark's Gospel, the answer is actually there aren't any such circumstances. The only reason why Moses allowed a man to divorce his wife was because of the standards of people, the hardness of people's hearts. Divorce was never God's design because from the beginning it was not so. In Matthew chapter 19, though Jesus gives one exception, and if you want to open your Bibles, we're looking at verses 1 to 12, we'll find the answer there. Now the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, before we get into this whole question of divorce and remarriage, I want to say that for many of us, this is a very intensely personal and painful experience. I know that some of our brothers and sisters here may have been divorced totally against your will. You know, you wanted to fix it and your spouse didn't, and you're left with a big pile of pain that you're working through. Shattered dreams, broken families, regrets, and all sorts of things. A lot of it which feels like it's beyond your control. Then there are others who are suffering in the hands of an abusive spouse. And it wasn't safe for you to be in the same place as that other person. And again, you're living with a lot of pain and hurt. And that's a terrible thing. You need all the support you can get from God's people. 
So please remember that this is not a message of condemnation. And let's not condemn each other over these things. You know and I know that when something big like this happens, it impacts every relationship. It impacts the whole family, including your relationship with God. But like all difficulties, it actually also provides an opportunity to know and experience God's sustaining grace and in new and deeper ways. It also helps us understand the amazing love of God and how He's continuing to love us when things go wrong and even when we ourselves contributed to the cause of things going wrong. So bear in mind, my friends, in no way in today's message is it meant to target or to judge you because we have all been redeemed by grace and we're forgiven by Jesus. So Jesus' answer to this question of divorce and remarriage was controversial. We need also to take note of the context as well. This is because the Pharisees here were trying to, to do some wet politics because divorce and remarriage was a hot issue at that time. This was because there was a various schools among the rabbis that had very strong opposing views. Shammai, a Jewish scholar of the first century, taught that divorce was only allowable on the grounds of unfaithfulness. But Hillel, also a Jewish scholar who was a contemporary, taught that divorce was allowed if the wife displeased the husband. Even serving up a bad meal was a grounds for divorce. And later on, there were even other rabbis who said it was allowable if the husband found someone fairer than his wife. You can see how quickly our society has declined when we distort the meaning of God's word. And I think we've gone even further than that today. No, legally, you are divorced if you're separated for 12 months with no questions asked. This makes divorce even easier. It is estimated that there were about approximately 2.2 divorces per 1,000 people in Australia alone in 2021, and sadly the trend is heading up. Now how many people do we have in, in Australia? 2.2 per 1,000. That's a lot of people divorcing. You see, these rabbis had their followers, of course, and they hotly debated this issue. So the Pharisees were not just asking the question for the interest in understanding the law, but they were trying to trap Jesus with that question. Basically, they wanted to see which political faction or party that Jesus was going to align himself to. Now, Jesus is smart. He obviously knows that's what they're trying to do. But instead of joining them in their argument about how far you could push the boundary of the law, which is really the question, Jesus goes back to the basics and answers the question of what's the original intention of the lawgiver. That's a good question for all of us to ask ourselves, isn't it? when we are reading the scripture, what's the intention of the law? You know, say it's tax time, you know, we whine and complain about the amount of taxes we have to pay, so we hire really smart accountants to move our money around or find loopholes in the tax laws to hide the money so we pay less taxes. 
But if we look at what's the original purpose of the tax law, the original intention is that I pay my fair share for the roads, contribute to the cost of the hospitals that I need to use when I'm sick, and to provide the ability to send my good kids to good schools, and to help care for people who can't work or who are ill. Now that's a totally different question, isn't it? As opposed to, you know, why is there a tax law? Why do I have to obey the tax law? So Jesus does this in his response. He takes them back to the original intention of this law. What does our creator say about this law? What does our creator say about this topic? The one who made us and knows us best. And of course, his intention is that they stick together. Now when two people marry, God joins them together. Although it's just the two of them standing in the church or wherever it is nowadays and making an oath saying, we're going to stick together till death do us part. There's something additional that goes on there. There's something additional. God joins them together. And he says, what I have joined together, let nobody pull apart. Not even the people that I've joined together now. So what Jesus is doing is taking us back to the original intention of marriage. When you look at the way marriage is referred to in the whole scripture, it forms a big part of it. From Genesis 2, where the verses are that Jesus quoted, right through to Revelations 19 in the last book of the Bible, the massive celebration in heaven called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We can see the picture of marriage throughout the whole Bible of God's relationship with His people, which is celebrated at the end of the Bible. Even as we look through the minor prophets like Malachi and Hosea, and so on, marriage is used to talk about the relationship between God and His people. The big picture of marriage is to reflect the relationship of God or of Jesus to His people. Yes, marriage is about love, it's about having kids, it's about caring for one another. But actually, the big picture in the Bible of marriage is about reflecting the covenant faithfulness of God to His people. And our response to that. Sadly, divorce distorts that meaning of marriage. Now Paul explains in Ephesians 5 that the man shall leave his mother and father hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound as it refers to Christ and the church. Let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see and respect her husband. The main point, the main point according to Paul, is that marriage points to the relationship of Jesus and the church. That's God's big plan for marriage. And our marriage, need, our earthly marriage, need to reflect the sacrificial covenant love and faithfulness of God for His people. Now, all of us here who are married or have been married will probably say, you know, I have fallen short, a long way short of that, haven't we? 
So it's not that those of us who manage to stay together have achieved that ideal. And those who haven't have failed. Friends, we've all fallen short of that. And somehow, by the grace of God, a fair proportion of us have been able to stick together. Thank God. The main purpose of it all for us is to reflect that covenant love of God. So for us to reflect this, I think it's really good to get our relationship priorities right. We need to put God first, our spouse second, kids third, and then the fourth is work. We need to make sure that we are right with God, care for our wives or our husbands and our kids, then worry about our work, not the other way around which is so, so common for us to do nowadays. We cannot treat work or your career as being more important than our marriages. So what does Jesus say about divorce and remarriage? Now hearing Jesus' response and seeing Jesus' unwillingness to play the political sides, the Pharisees then tried to throw Jesus off by, make, by asking a contradicting question about the Old Testament ruling on divorce. So they said to him, Why did Moses command one, of, one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and remarries another commits adultery. So here Jesus allows an exception to what was in Luke chapter 16. He provides one reason only for divorce and remarriage and that is unfaithfulness. In other words, the other person getting involved in sexual activity outside the marriage is grounds for divorce and remarriage. Now Paul takes this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as well, where he talks about the whole idea of singleness, marriage, and separation, divorce, and remarriage. He says that a Christian ought not to divorce their spouse. He says, To the married I give the charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And her husband should not divorce his wife. Now what Paul is saying here is that they do separate. They should stay unmarried or be reconciled. Now I'm sure this raises a lot of questions because this is really complex. Like when did this happen? Was it because he became a Christian or after he became a Christian and so on? So you know what if the other person has gone off and you know you're remarried, should you wait around in hope that one day they'll be reconciled and come back to you and so on. So lots and lots of questions comes to mind when you're thinking about this topic. Now we obviously don't have time to go through all of them, but let me encourage you that if you are grappling with these questions, come back and take a look in depth in these passages and perhaps even talk to someone who can help you. Now notice in this passage that there's a case for separation. Now Paul says if they separate, so, that's, so there's a case for godly separation here. 
whether separation, whether because the relationship is unsafe or it's abusive or one of the other is harming the family, it is not unreasonable to separate for a period of time. There's a case for separating, especially because we're hurting one another. And until that changes, then it's not good for us to be together. You know, how do we work out when the time comes? Now, my advice is to go back to the big picture again and understand what the concept of that of marriage is all about. Now, Christian love is always about other-centered, isn't it? It's not about me and about what I'm fed up with. It's about what's good for the other person. So if the other person is being abusive and harmful or harming you or the kids, then it can be a good and godly and a loving thing to do to say, look, I'm stepping out of this until you go and get help to deal with that anger management or your gambling problem or your drinking problem or your drug-taking problem, whatever it may be. That can be a good thing to help the other person to confront things that they need to confront. Obviously, there's a lot that happens before we get to that stage. But Paul says that it's possible as a kind of a, a circuit breaker and the aim of it is to reconcile on a better basis after. Paul goes on in the chapter to also talk about another situation where separation can occur, but he doesn't use the divorce when he's talking to the Corinthians. As the Corinthians became Christians from all sorts of backgrounds, He's saying if an unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then don't fight over it. He says we are called to peace. So it seems like there are two exceptions to the rule that Jesus gives us in Luke. One is if the other partner has been unfaithful. And the second is if a Christian person has been abandoned by a non-Christian spouse. Now right back to Matthew 19. Jesus has said what he said about divorce and remarriage. Now the interesting thing and surprising thing here is that his disciples' response to, to what Jesus says in verse 10. It says, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, is it better not to marry? You know, perhaps singleness is a better option if you, can't stay, if you think that you can't remain faithful. Jesus then replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. They are shocked because Jesus seems to be saying something that's even harsher than what most conservatives or the Pharisees were saying. If that's how hard you're locked into the marriage vows, who would bother? You know, it's interesting that Jesus' response to them was about singleness or celibacy. He puts singleness for the sake of the kingdom forward as a real option in the context of marriage. But that is obviously a message for a different time. Now whether we are married or not, we need to live a life that reflects Jesus and his relationship to the church. Friends, if you are married, work hard to reflect the relationship of Jesus with the church. We all need to do some routine maintenance on our marriages to make sure it's working. It's the same with our cars. We get our cars serviced regularly, and if we don't eventually, the car gets, it breaks down. 
or gets to a state they cannot be repaired. Likewise, routine maintenance of our marriages is way more precious than maintaining our cars. How do we do it? Well, there are many ways. You could read a book, good book together, make memories together. The most powerful Christian witness these days is the example of a warm, forgiving, hospitable, united, and happy Christian home. That's a very strong testimony to the non-believers in the world. To sum it up, work on reflecting Jesus' love in your relationship. No, if things are not going well, you both might consider going to a Christian marriage counselor, perhaps. It's okay to say you're not okay. And both parties need to be supportive of one another to try and work through the challenges that they are currently facing. Don't wait until the fire is burning down the house before you get the extinguisher, the fire extinguisher out. Do something now before it gets worse. Because the more you let it go, the more you hurt one another and the harder it is to mend that relationship. Now if you're divorced, and this is a really difficult place to be in, let me encourage you to look prayerfully at these passages to think through how God wants you to live in reflecting Jesus. You need friends around you. To help you with that, and you need to be at least one friend that you can say anything to, and they will love you unconditionally and pray with you and not judge you and to be there just for you. Now, for those of you who are divorced and remarried, this is not a message of judgment, but a reminder of the sanctity of marriage and the reminder of the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also a reminder that whilst the law is there, we all screwed up. And that is why we need Jesus. There is no condemnation here, for we are all sinners, saved through the blood of Jesus. We want you to know that we love you, and we hope that the new union that you are in will be firmly centered upon Christ. For the rest, when somebody shares with you that their marriage is running into trouble, so that they've been divorced, please be their friend who will listen to them and seek to understand what they're going through. Pray with them. Don't condemn them. Don't condemn one another but rather let's support and encourage one another and to let's help people who take the risk of actually sharing their struggles with us. Walk with them. Help them to find good support if you do not know how to support them. Friends, I'm sure you agree that this is a very difficult topic and for some it's even harder. And I know I may not have done it justice but feel free to come have a chat with me or anyone on the board so that we can help you in whatever way we can if you're struggling with issues like that. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your love for us that despite our sinfulness and our disobedience, 
and are rebelling against your commandment and your law, that you still love us, that you have forgiven us, and you've carried our sins upon that cross for us. Thank you that we can stand before you righteous, redeemed by grace, redeemed by your blood. Not because of what we've done, not because we are worthy, but because of what you are and what you've done. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you, God, for forgiving us. For those of us, Lord, who are struggling with our marriages, we pray for mercy and grace to be upon our hearts, that we put you first and correct our relationship with you and then correct our relationship with one another. Help us not to condemn, help us not to judge, but instead let us be loving, encouraging, supportive, because it is a tough time that we're going through, especially when relationships are being broken or challenged. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, that despite our bad behavior and our rebellion, that you've not divorced us, that you've not broken that covenant relationship that you have with us. Thank you for the gift of marriage. And we pray, dear Lord, that we are holy with such holiness and sanctity and we will treat it with the respect that you have designed from the very beginning of time. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.